destroying the entire universe. Welcome to Radio Free Demos, an Ixinterconus fan podcast broadcasting from Object 17, or 12, 17, Voltaire Station. This week's episode is brought to you by Space Peanuts, Space Popcorn, Space Cracker Jacks, and Space Tums. Wait, we were 18 last time. What happened? Uh, we got either advanced or demoted. I forget which. The, the winnowing happened. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's point defense systems were a little bit too effective. Second end does not use the same dice pool system. We rolled our object location on 2D8. This is episode 54, Sci-Fi Sports. So, quick question. Yes. How many of you happened to catch the big ball ball game that happened recently? Oh, definitely. I did not. (laughs) I did not. With that literary degree coming into play, sir? Yes, it is. Yeah, they got the object into the goal. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, at least once. I nice. believe our team sports it good. <laughs> okay, excellent. Did they ever get the thing out of the goal? I, you don't, don't know. There was just a different one. Oh, just more things. They just come out, <laughs> they come out of the thing emitter. <laughs> yeah, there's this hole in the center of the playing area. I just like, just another one appears, and it's good. Please don't abandon thread now. We promise to actually talk about sports later. (laughs) (laughs) So that takes us to the, I guess, the first question of the episode. What is a sport? And I think this is comparable to what is art or what is pornography in terms of answerability. I mean, pornography is what is on my computer right now. Right. I think one of the things you mentioned when you were compiling the list, Carbo, was whether the most dangerous game is a sport. And you were arguing that it is not. And I would agree with that, that that, that's not a sport. That's a small war. If you can put points on it and do it again, then I guess it's a sport. So let's rewind a bit, because the most dangerous game is someone hunting a human. Right. Okay. So that's a small... I see what you're saying. Yeah. No, that's, that's not friendly competition at all. Well, that depends on what contracts you've signed and if you're backed up prior. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I kind of feel like if, if anything goes, it's not a sport. Sports have, I mean, have rules. And then there's the Hunger Games, a popular book series of uh, ages of old, where we put a bunch of people into arena and anything goes as long as one comes out alive. Oh, so you're not talking about the, the, hyena, the hyena cafeteria line. Unfortunately not. <laughs> okay. so this is the old, old books. Never of, seen anybody wield a tray like that. <laughs> nice spin. So yeah, the the Webster's definition the Webster's definition of game of sport of sport is very simple. It is something done for fun. A more elaborate de- definition uh, involves some combination of like competition, um, physical activity. A really common element is it's for fun, uh, and that is important. Um, right. Usually involves skills. There's usually rules or organized play, um, but all of these things can be like not necessarily the case or more the case or less the case. It's just kind of, I think it ultimately boils down to whether society has considered it a sport for a while now. I, I think one of the things that you had mentioned earlier was the uh, sport hunting, whether that's a sport or not. Right. And um, it's certainly not fun for the fuzzy animals, um, but it, 
it's competitive in a sense. I mean, you show off things and hold up your fish and say, look at that fish. Right. And, and then there's, there's a difference between the sport hunting and the hunting for survival. Right. Which makes me speculate, is there a difference between agriculture for survival and sport agriculture or or gardening? Is that a sport? Um. It's rarely competitive, but if you could make it competitive... Now, again, none of these are like oh, hard definitions. Have, 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 have you seen HOAs in, in I, people's lawns? Right. Actually, there's uh, a fun thing. There are, I believe, rock garden competitions of who can do the techniques most correctly or make the best looking... I might be completely Lord. wrong on that, but I would imagine that is a thing. It's, I was going to say, I, I don't think you've been to some of the same rodeos and I believe 4-H... Uh, <laughs> Competitions. So, yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, everything could be a sport, depending on how you define sport. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I think a lot, a lot of these things is like, is it art? Uh, I don't believe that X genre is music. Um, so also, uh, the thing is, tennis is a sport, but pickleball, which is basically tennis, is not. Well, why isn't pickleball a sport? I don't know. I've never seen competitive uh, leagues of pickleball, but what I have is, seen competitive leagues of tennis. What is pickleball? Basically tennis. Can we just have a slightly less circular definition? <laughs> it is, um, it's a lighter racket with a lighter ball on a smaller court, and I don't believe there's a net. Also, that's, it's usually served on a bun with, with meat. Right. No, that's yeah. that's clearly a sport. It's just maybe not an organized one yet. But Would you call chess a sport? No, I would call chess boxing a sport. Let's talk about chess boxing later. <laughs> what would you call chess then? Because a it game. definitely has a competition and a ladder. A game. A game. A game. Hmm. Now, yes, let's not define either of these things. You cannot clearly define either one of these things, but... Would you call professional video gaming a sport? See, that's that's a hazy one. There's uh, esports, which people are very much trying to get a sport and are now, I think, kind of trying to regulate esports as well. I think that esports are definitely in the techno-isn't-music category. Because, yeah. because the get off my lawn faction is going to say no. There's no. You're not doing something healthy and outdoors, um, and so they're going to really lean heavily on the athletics part of the definition. So, but the people who stand to make money will say it's a sport. Right, right, right. I mean, it's, it's it has many sport like qualities if nothing else. It's an empty word in some ways. So, in these lists, we're going to have some some things that are mostly like animal cruelty or. Um, or highly non-competitive, or stylized, and again... I mean, if we're drawing the battle lines between animal cruelty or chess, I know which side I'm on. (laughs) Which side? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you might have to specify that for the rest of us. Well, black, of course. Oh, okay. Thank you. Ah. Um, So, again, I have to... Ultimately, I think we need to fall back on its sport if culture says it's sport. And that's the only real answer. It's just not a helpful one. I will know a sport when I see one. Exactly. And I just want to name drop blow football. Okay. Okay. Thank I'm you. Done. Um, so what makes a good sci-fi sport or contrary wise, what makes a crappy sci- bad sci-fi sport? Blood. Blood. Blood is not required, but it's good for post-apocalypse <laughs> game. Uh, <laughs> embedded LEDs. Yes, that's helpful. Everything has to be glowing. Uh, yeah, uh, I think low G or zero G is a requirement, or just adding that makes a sport sci-fi. Right, right. Um, the phrase to the death. <laughs> Look, zero G chess. <laughs> <laughs> Knight to kings somewhere. <laughs> uh, adding wheels is also a useful one. Okay. Yeah, so you get well, like... Um, you came a little bit closer to post-apoc, though. 
Uh, there, there's a difference between post-apoc sport and sci-fi sport. You have yeah, no earthly idea how many hours I've spent over the last two weeks researching sci-fi sports. <laughs> I mean, if it gets... More than three. <laughs> there, there's a point at which you have to go, is it two Mad Max? Yes. Uh, you can't really The combine... prefix of giant makes it a sci-fi sport. Yeah, and giant robots, too. Okay, sure, so. sure. And what would you call the game in Ender's Game? What is the game in Ender's Game? Was there a game in Ender's Game? There was a game in Ender's Game. What is the, it? The, battle, the battling practice where you had two teams that were trying to shoot each other. Or was it a war? Oh, that was a video game, so yeah. obviously that's not a sport. Oh, oh right. No, that no, was no. like mediated. That was like remote control. It was a remote control war made to look like a game. No, no, there, there was actually, there were teams competing where they would actually have, um, I think it was teams of seven in a battlefield that one team could configure. And it was, if you froze all of the other team, then you um, won. But okay. it was not described as big flashy. It was described as, I believe, mostly white, if I'm recalling it's, the book correctly. This is just an RTF. RTS, right? I mean, functionally? RTF is different. <laughs> what, is, what is RTF now? I can't remember. Well, I think real-time strategy is RTS. It was an FPS, which is first-person shooter, or third-person, depending on who you're looking at. So a video game is not necessarily a sport. Let's, let's, let's say that Ender's Game is probably an exciting and engaging video game at this point, rather than going down this road too far. When does sport just become war, though? Pulse. No. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's a, that's a hard one. Well, so one of the things I want to talk about, or we can do it now, is there was a... Um, uh, Jugger is a game from a movie, Blood of Heroes, which is translated out of German from something German. Um, and it's, it's got rules, so therefore it must be a game. But it's mostly like stylized bloodshed and death. It's uh, more or less a ball and hoop game, but the ball is a dog's skull. And um, everybody has weaponry, although only one person can have a chain weapon. Um, so this is this is murder and mayhem, but with some rules and a timer and a gong. Huh. Um, well, that's pretty close to war. Jumanji is also a game, but it's a video game. No, it was also a <laughs> board game at some point. In Let time. us <laughs> not go down this road. It is a crazy road. But they have uh, a sport hunter there. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the devil's advocate is not is paid by the hour. We can't afford him. Can you you made a, this podcast a game. We're simply playing. <laughs> Sorry, a sport. But war is rarely played, theoretically, for fun. I mean, you can make jokes about that. You could argue one way or the other. But war is not a recreational activity. Do you, I mean, oh, well... That, there's an I argument mean, to be made there. Yeah, there is an, always an argument to be made. You could also say war is not a food product and find some way of <laughs> disagreeing with me on that. For the there, most, there is a legit argument to be made there. But sports are also fairly often a front for war. It is a different way to let out tensions or compete on the international scale between two countries that may or may not be uh, firing at each other shortly. Yeah, but they aren't. Just because you're sublimating your rage into... <laughs> international soccer doesn't mean the soccer is an act of war just because you're warring through politics as opposed to guns doesn't mean it's any less war yeah but the game becomes a tool not <laughs> an aspect of war but just one thing now now brocky and ultra cricket is a game that causes wars we'll get there eventually so can we please not play devil's advocate anymore because the home edition was too expensive for this podcast. Poor Corbo. Um, so sports, oh, what do you think about Quidditch, by the way? I hate it. I hate Quidditch so much. I think it's, Oh, the, the old, um, if the prota protagonist is doing it, he gets infinite points. Right, that one, yes. It's not a good game. 
Yeah, and the LARPing of it has been kind of funny because it involves people running around on broomsticks, which is a bit ridiculous. True, uh, true. I have never heard of this game. Do I need to go research this? Quidditch? Um, yeah. Harry Potter? Oh, that explains it. Oh, my. <laughs> Ashtar, it's, the book's been out for 740 years. <laughs> Spoilers. Yeah, not long enough. Okay. No, Quidditch is a silly game where people float on broomsticks, and it's a ball and hoop game played with on broomsticks. But one of the mechanics is there's a special magical gold ball that's hard to catch, and when you get it, you get 100 points, which is basically more than anybody is. 90? Sure, why not? One million points for Gryffindor. Yeah. So it, basically getting that undoes all the points that everybody else has scored for the rest of the game. It, everybody's a wizard, and the points don't matter. Basically. So. Yeah. <laughs> Except it's I can't the, just start <laughs> shouting out uh, theme ideas and have people acting it out, unfortunately. It's the opposite of Special Olympics. Only Harry's the winner. Just a, a, as a total side thing, th- there was a furry con recently that had a Harry Potter theme. They did play Quidditch in the parking lot, including people in fursuits on brooms playing Quidditch. And at one point, someone in a fursuit came by and yelled nerds at them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in a beautiful display of something. I'm not sure what. <laughs> oh, God, we're eating our own. Yes. <laughs> so, sports in Seoul. Should we talk about canon ones or not canon ones? Well, I'm. Um, uh, we could talk about the canon sports in Seoul if we'd like to. I think to. he wants to just talk about them. Doesn't care how at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Just as long as we're not saying, well, what is Seoul, really? <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, there are actually, uh, particularly in Sound and Silence, but with a reference in um, the core rule book, there are some canon sports in Seoul. Proving Grounds, that's not... Is that a sport or not a sport? Proving Grounds are an old one from First Ed. Sounds like Starship Troopers to me. It does. Um, Proving Grounds are a place as much as a concept. It's a series of giant robot fighting game. Like, I guess, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, but played by ASR on a titanic scale. I mean, uh, that was kind of a jest, but that sounds very much like IRPF. Uh, IRPF? Yeah. ASR. ASR. Uh, I mean, BattleBots I mean, is currently a thing where you basically build small broken remote control robots, put it into an almost indestructible, yeah. hopefully almost indestructible playing field, and go, right. go, there are saw blades on the edge. Don't flip over or don't get pushed into them and don't catch on fire. Yeah, it's huge. It's that, but huge with explosions in low gravity. Yeah. And you throw all your IRPF recruits into it, and the ones that come out, pass. Well, that may be an IRPF training <laughs> exercise, but for spectacle and on TV, it's an ASR event. Now, it's not just... It, for one thing, it's a series of matches leading up to the giant fighting robot Rock'em Sock'em game. But there's also a lot of other stuff as well that kind of uses the court and the concept of technologically enhanced gaming. So the Proving Ground is a concept and a place and a game series as well. Are you allowed to have robots that hack the other robots? I hope so. Probably. Because that would hack be the other crazy. robots? Yes. Oh my Not God. with like an axe. I mean, it's, like, you know. It's probably a bit like the battle bots as there are today where there's very different leagues where in some of them, like, you can't have spinning robots because that's really easy or you can't have giant hammers or you can't have flamethrowers or... Well, let's get back well, to what's the fun in that? Uh, sometimes people like to compete without flamethrowers and those people are mad. <laughs> so, so at some point in time, some PC is going to suggest, some player is going to suggest this, but can you have put a cog into the giant robot Olympics? You probably shouldn't. I mean, there's there's all sorts of reasons not to do that, but someone's going to float that as an idea. I mean, as long as the cog agrees, <laughs> I don't see why there's a problem with it. Well, you just have to find an agreeable cog. I mean, that machine is telepathy. Not a you did character. say that this was a sport, and sports have rules. 
otherwise, why not enter your latest AI battlecruiser into the game as well? Sure. But that, if XKCD has anything to say, my latest AI battlecruiser is just an, a highly advanced neural network that I trained to drive this thing. It just <laughs> happens to take the form of this, you know, my friend Mark, who is a cog. The drop. The drop. I love the drop. You do love the drop. Describe the drop for me, please. That, that's when the beat stops. No. And everybody pauses. <laughs> I knew I wouldn't be able to survive this episode. Okay, the drop. In the drop, uh, two teams of two people, maybe multiple teams of two people, design a crash pod, a plummeting vessel, like a spaceship, but it doesn't have any lift, just the opposite. Atmospheric um, reentry vehicle. Okay, that works. Uh, and it comes in a uh, IKEA-style uh, cloud of parts which is deployed in high altitude high altitude yes and ideally you will have built it before you hit the ground or at least enough of it that you survive hitting the ground right uh-huh. right so things this this really kind of hits a lot of like good soul sports because it allows for a lot of diversity in players you need people that have engineering skill quick responses a, a cog would be really useful because they would be also they can survive zero g better low atmosphere better right right but it, it, it takes a range of players and skills to, uh, to work well. A good sport for a campaign as well. And just remember, it's not the fall that kills you. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the sudden deceleration at the end. <laughs> yeah. You will hit the ground. It's just a matter of how hard. Right. right. Uh, line running, another popular one that Pulse televises. I, I think I'm on the, on the fence on line running because it's basically um, like part roller coaster, part zip lining, part... Tron style sports cycle. For those of you who are versed in video games, it's kind of like Bioshock's Infinite, their way of getting around the hook, basically where there's lines everywhere going from point to point in various degrees of swirly. Uh, swirly. And you have to get from point A to point B while completing objectives and not falling off. Conveniently yeah. enough, you've also just described a pulse city. Yeah, well. I have. Uh, it, yeah, people kind of latch onto these lines that have a lot of loop-de-loops and downward plunges and such like. And it's it's mostly comp- competition for speed, but you can occasionally find a place where two lines cross. And by getting a little bit ahead of somebody and throwing the relay at just the right time, you can probably end their lives in a spectacular manner. So good for TV. Just don't crash into them. You might end your own. In the same way that you would die with, uh, from the fall is sudden deceleration at the very end. Right. There's not a lot of safety equipment in uh, line running. Hook. Hook is ball ball. Uh, it's sort of a combination of basketball and dodgeball, but in low G, zero G. I don't really have anything else to say about that. Okay, if you've started with the line, the hook, and the next game you bring up is the sinker, we're going to have mm. words. No, the next game is arena combat. Which, uh, <laughs> I thought it was the bobber. The bobber? Right. The other part of fishing. <laughs> hook, line, and sinker. You need a bobber to make sure. Uh, depends on the type of fishing you do, but, you know. Yes, but that, then it's not an expression. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, arena combat is a big thing in Pulse. It has been for 600 years. This is mostly for the audience, but um, there's big money there. Hmm. I don't know. What more, what more can you say about that? Ball, uh, arena combat is the quintessential past and future sport, I think. Lots of applause. Three men enter, two men die, something like that. During kind of the process of building up to this episode, I was really trying to outline a sport for every megacorp, and that kind of presented some challenges for me because some corps don't lend themselves well to gaming so much you kind of have to infer a lot based on their style like what makes a good spyglass sport 
one of the things that we played in college for kind of computer security was everyone had a basically machine that was connected to all of the other machines, and the point of the game was to take over everyone else's machine while defending your own. Oh, sort of. Which a, was a mm-hmm. it was a strategic. Uh, uh, lockdown and attack. So you had to have people who are incredibly good at both securing your own machine as well as people who are incredibly good at finding vulnerabilities in others and working faster than the other team. Interesting. Is that really a sport when that's literally your day-to-day life? I mean, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) Your problems are not my problems. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, I, I eventually went with a hidden rules mechanic for Spyglass because I, I like concealed rules games conceptually. They'd probably end my friendships. But um, I think that fits with the, the Spyglass um, bribery, social currency, um, secrets are valuable, but only if they're shared sort of approach to things. What are the other fun kind of sports that are kind of showing itself like today in the real world that will be probably very prevalent in Spyglass in the future is here is a sport, build an AI to with a standardized robot to play this sport. It's competitive AI building so that you win if your AI wins the sport. You lose if your AI doesn't work. How is that not work. ASR rather than Spyglass? I mean, nothing, uh, nothing is com- any one corporation necessarily. It would be a but- combination of everything because okay. this uh, kind of you have a standardized platform, build the code that goes with it, where the ASR part would probably be build the standardized platform. I think it's all ASR. ASR is like the entire world of tech and computers is their, their bread and butter. Where does Spyglass come in? Security? Um, and, and breaking it. Um, Spyglass's main stock and trade is selling secrets. Okay. They do have a lot of good communications equipment, um, but primarily they're focused on um, like social warfare. Yeah. Like, I think they have a very heavy focus just on social itself. Yeah. You look at the different Spyglass cities, they don't really have an external social structure like a lot of the other megacorps. Like most, of their, most of their social structure is organically developed just by whose neighbors at any given point or where you are. And if I recall correctly, Spyglass in first ed actually had all of the social skills. Nobody else had hmm. even so half of them. Spy v. Spy. Yeah. Spy v. Spy type things seems very accurate. Um, a lot of the community or the Hidden Rules games where you're trying to talk your way in or out of situations and suss out what other people's motivations, goals, or competitive interrogation, or is that more of the RPF stuff? Uh, competitive interrogation where you lose if it if the subject realizes they're being interrogated, perhaps. <laughs> That'd be an interesting one. Progenitus, uh, another one that I had a lot of trouble kind of framing an idea around, because Progenitus doesn't feel like a competitive group. So I started basing things more on, like, what I know about church groups and things like that, youth activities, things that are more more kumbaya, less dodgeball. When I floated that on the Discord chat, people really kind of strongly disagreed with me on that. And the general feeling was that uh, progenitus would do things more like downhill skating or skiing, skating, mountain climbing, things where the individual competes almost as much against themselves, but th- there's competition for numbers, but not direct person-to-person conflict. See, I can't disagree with that. So... One of the things about Progenitus is going to be that, yes, it is kind of a external social structure. So you are going to see formalized, very rules-heavy type sports. It's a little fascist. (laughs) You said that. I agree with that, but I didn't say that. But with that in mind, you're going to have a steady dash of team building with it. You're Mm -hmm. going to have a steady dash of competition, but you're going to have more of a competition built around maybe rooting for your team or rooting for the whatever ideal or mascot your team is for so at the end of the day you're not rioting in the streets because your team lost you're 
down at the pub drinking synth the hall because yay everybody had a good time i actually took the support that i designed for them in a distinctly fascist direction it made me happy uh pulse how on earth do you define a pulse sport competition Competition. Pure and simple competition. Yeah. There is no sport that you are not either competing with yourself or competing with other people to be top dog. Are, are they big on machines? Not generally. Not 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 no, but that's not their first thing. Mm-hmm. There's probably, I mean, there's definitely some spectacle in fighting against the machine, but I don't think that they would consider that a true sport. Well, they would probably want their sports, like if they're going to use machines, it might be what our current MotoGP is, where incredibly fast-paced, uh, the machine is basically just there to serve as a vehicle, literally, for the person's ability to uh, be, like, their reflexes. I think if you really want to figure out where whole sports are going going to distill down, uh, look back into the original Olympics. It's the form of man, the form of human. It, it's not. <laughs> and city planning. And city planning. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's very much, it's the development of the individual and it's competition between individuals. So here's kind of two sides of Pulse, though. And I think what Wines is going with this, he, was, he wrote up the rules for a giant mm-hmm. robot ball. Pulse sports can be uh, more traditional team sports, backyard sports, the physical games. They can also be American Gladiator, American Ninja, Beastmaster, the games for, made for television. And those are different ideas. They're both highly competitive. I think in the made-for-TV things, you could have any number of things, biological monstrosities, robot obstacles, spinning death traps, more spinning death traps, ninja warriors, naked warriors or ninja warriors? Ninja warriors. Ninja warriors. It's true that I think Pulse does not showcase machines, but that doesn't mean they wouldn't include it in their vast and endless search for novelty, particularly in the made-for-TV games. ASR, ASR is integration of technology and society. They... Augmented reality. Start to finish. Yeah, I think that's the the base would be augmented reality or or just robotics AIs. Or pure and virtual reality. So I guess this is where the um, build an AI to play the game would come into play a little bit better than Spyglass. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, AI as a game master might be really kind of exciting too. Kind of Within limits, because ASR also has that whole AI hunter concept going. You, you'd yeah. Be, you, you, you want to train people to develop computer programming skills through games because that's a great way to train up the next generation of scientists but you have to be very careful about how far you push them in that direction marsco stumped me uh tygon came through he suggested a game that i thought was perfect for marsco but uh, that one threw me because marsco is is universal uh, marsco maybe would adapt from earth more often than anything else and i think that might be a very signature move for them but um when i when i thought of marsco i think that maybe Social unity is is maybe core to their ideal. Generic, changeable, but all-encompassing, um, rewarding diversity. I think social unity would fall a little bit more under progenitus, like within the ideal that they're pushing for like the purpose of the game being social unity type thing. Mm-hmm. I really see Marsco in this case as maybe not having a signature game. Hmm. They're just going to sample everybody else's and run with whoever's popular at the time. Yeah, I actually kind of like the idea that they are adapting from Old Earth, where you might have your traditional American football, your traditional European football, cricket, baseball, golf. Marsco doesn't really strike me as traditionalists, though. They're just more pragmatists. But they, it's it's one of the easy pickup. Everyone can play it. It's, it's a team-based game that's not, like ultra highly competitive that people can really get behind it's a uh, i think it would be end up being more like club sports yeah i'm not arguing against very strongly i'm just saying eh, TT, tti 
bio Pokemon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I think mean, that's, whatever that's... it is, it's going to involve a bioengineered component. I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of a given. When, I believe that was even in the books. That was, was the ASR or TTI? TTI does tend to have, find them all sort of component. But one can imagine them having a, like, low-end bioprobes that you could use for any number of, of weird activities. Well, don't Pretty, get, I mean, we don't want to get too focused on the bioprobe side. TTI is very much about creating life and life forms to fulfill purposes. Okay, to rewind a bit, virtually everything that is not a vector is a bioprobe yeah. or a bug. So anyway, in, in terms of like what they create, it's safe to call a lot of that stuff bioprobes. Mm-hmm. True. You left one of the megacorps out. Not Lumen. No. What did I leave out? IRPF. Oh. oh. The military masters of ping pong. <laughs> and little else. Okay. Well, yeah, prepackaged, I think, is their kind of their lifestyle. They're, they, they're a bit, you know, break things down, take things apart, move things around, but they're really standardized. And that's kind of, I think, one of their, one of their signatures. But they use sh- uh, sharpshooting or competition shooting? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything that, be, that would have a training component would be a natural competition and game for IRPF. But ultimately, though, I think that you need to be concerned with how these things are going to play out at your table. They might make a useful cultural reference, which is fine. A lot of this stuff might just be background color, particularly the Pulse like made for TV games. But playing them at your table presents challenges and not necessarily fun ones. Playing a game within a game almost never works. There are very few instances where that rolls out the way the GM expects. Yeah, I I've, definitely want to adopt a, a skill challenge mechanic type thing. I've mm-hmm. always done games within games as make a few checks. Uh, whoever gets the highest checks, you get to describe your go- uh, glory play. Whoever fails the most checks, you get to describe your glory failure. Mm-hmm. Very abstract. I think some things like, like the full-on arena combat, more questy things, you could legitimately have some of those be a campaign, at least one session. I wouldn't do it for things like American Gladiator because that would be just endless dice rolling, but certain, certain more epic pulse projects might play well. Longer form games, like the, yeah, the pulse ones very much. If there is a competitive interrogation thing with Spyglass, then that would be a very good one as well, even though that is mostly role-playing and making a few checks which is kind of what we do anyway. <laughs> Taking a look at some uh, sci-fi games from literature, and I'm kind of going for a random scattering here. This is going to be a list. I'm so sorry, but we'll go quickly through it. And if there's anything that sounds exciting enough to like throw into your game or something, let's stop for a moment. I'm uh, going for diversity. I'm trying to avoid just adding to the death at the end of things uh, and doing a nice little survey of what I've been able to find from sci-fi literature, TV, that sort of thing, and other role-playing games too, because there's some fun stuff out there. Literature, one I found yesterday that kind of made me laugh was from uh, William Tins. Winthrop was sub- stubborn. Uh, the game is called Micro Hunting. This is a safari type activity, so the question of whether uh, hunting is a sport comes up. But it, this sort of is because what you do is you shrink yourself down to 25 to 60 microns high and go searching for a paramecium. Good explanation because that had a very different connotation in HSD. Yeah. Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, this, this one features like a, someone who's locked themselves into the game for like 15 minutes of play. I mean, the game, the, the, the activity. It's apparently a more romantic version of medical practice because you're, you know, go, go and kill the viruses with a sword. Uh, his, his downfall was that he went to 25 microns, which is like double the size of the bacterium he was hunting, but then got attacked by some tropical rubella type thing that was twice as big as him, and he died horribly. Yeah, there's some single-cell organisms that are quite brutal and also about the size of a small grain of rice. So yeah, you wouldn't want to encounter those, encounter those on your uh, micro safari there. Wuliu. I don't know how to exactly say that. W-U-L-I-U. 
Willie? I don't know. W-U-L-I-U. W-U space L-I. Why are we doing this? Um, <laughs> this is uh, from a recent uh, young adult book by Henry Lean called Peace Sprouts Chen. That's the name of the character. Uh, this is a combination of kung fu and figure skating, uh, which right away sounds amazingly bloody and fun. He developed this as a feminist sport, which is kind of interesting because he picked two things that weren't about muscle mass, but were about balance and poise and grace and combined them. The city that this is built in is called Pearl. It's covered in this very slick, plasticky substance that doesn't erode very easily. So the entire place, it's kind of parkour on ice sort of structure. And the game is mostly ceremonial. It's for opera and things like that. But the child wants to be the very best and um, kind of struggle forward. Uh, he describes it as being a kind of queer-oriented sport, too, because it's a little bit camp. <laughs> <laughs> Wall Running by Karen Lord uh, Galaxy Game is the book this is from. This one does feel kind of easily adapted to HSD. It involves, uh, and TTI actually, uh, involves scaling slash running across a wall with widely varying gravity, like little patches of gravity that'll flux around. So you kind of have to do some floating and dancing and dealing with almost invisible fluxes in the environment that you can't really see. What this game is in, in the book is a tool for developing and predicting psychic abilities. Uh, because the people on the ground kind of coordinating the actions they get some real intuition going on over what's happening. So like Ender's Game, I guess, it becomes kind of a screening process for some elite skills. And I can see adapting that into uh, TTI land fairly easily because you always have this kind of relationship with cool and um, how do you develop that? How do you identify that? A Minerva Sierra Challenge. Minerva Sierra being a mountain ridge in California, I believe. A recent novella by S.B. Divya called Runtime this one feels very HSD in a number of ways. The idea is that an elite group of humans tricks their bodies out like sports cars with so much biomodification that they become kind of not even human, genderless things designed for a um, just this, this sort of quest. Uh, they call themselves moots, like moot point, I guess. And the game is a day-long trek across the Sierra Nevada for all these like super augmented uh, Borgs kind of race. So right away, there's kind of body horror, body modification themes, which are very big in HSD, but also the author focuses on um, ideas of socioeconomics, um, immigration, and other kind of hot-button political issues. Uh, there's an interview with her on a podcast that I'm really excited by called Androids and Assets, which is the socio <laughs> socioeconomics of sci-fi. Looking forward to digging into that one. One more from uh, literature. Uh, it's more of a parody. Uh, Brockian Ultra Cricket. This is a Douglas Adams game. It's, it's absurdist. Almost anything involving cricket is absurdist. The idea is that you build a wall, throw a bunch of weapons over it. People behind it fight. You can't really see them fight. That's okay because what you're imagining is probably better than the actual event. And then everybody apologizes afterwards. And the game is judged based on the quality and clarity of your apology. Sounds... That's very weirdly cast Canadian. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Canadian British sort of thing. But uh, Douglas Adams is about the non sequitur more than almost anything else. Oh, is that it for literature? No, not quite. Brave New World. Uh, Brave New World. This one, this one set me off on a, a really random aside for a while as I did some numerology work on it. Brave New World has a couple of sports, and they have a very similar theme. And I think the theme is more important than the event. Uh, some sports they mention are electromagnetic golf, escalator squash, and Centrifugal, centrifugal bumble puppy. I don't know what that is. Centrifugal bumble puppy. Is that clear? I mean, 
Bumblebee. It's in the I name. mean, no, not it's, at all. It's in the name. Please go on. Um, the idea is that in the future of seven of six forty after Ford, it's a consumer society, and regular sports that you can do with like a ball and other players have been largely abandoned because they want to promote sports that push the economy. So every sport has been technologically enhanced and made fundamentally unplayable without lots of equipment to drive the economy, which again is a very HSD concept, I think, in some ways along with all the genetic manipulation. There was another game they mentioned called um, Rhineman Surface Tennis, which may be a little bit more thoughty. I don't know. Rhineman Surface is like that kind of colored map of a 3D object made with straight lines. What, where I got really distracted by, though, was working on the date that, that these games we developed. It works out to about 720 years in the future. Well, about 2450, which is 750 years after Ford. 720. So the numerology kind of matched up with HSC's timetable in a way that made me very happy, and I'm wondering if there was some hidden inspiration there. I don't know. That's it for literature. We will assume yes and never ask the question. No. I did ask the question, <laughs> but... Uh, from there, moving on towards uh, anime, a couple of... These are all basically weightless and in space versions, or to the death. Um, space Adventure Cobra features Rugball. It's Rugby. In space. No, it's rugby <laughs> to the death. Uh, it's rugby baseball, rugby baseball with a cannon, and murder is allowable as long as you're on defense. So, rugby. Yeah, well, <laughs> with a diamond that you run around. Lifting is uh, from the series Eureka 7. I, I, this sounds visually very neat. It's basically skyboard surfing, cloud surfing, whatever, where you have a board and you kind of go on the air. But you're not surfing on air, you're surfing on these kind of aerial waves of sparkle particles from some sort of decomposing plant alien creature, I guess. As a visual, the idea of maybe in a, in a, a massive pulse arena, having this cloud of semi-visible stuff that you kind of descend and explore on your way down might be kind of exciting to watch. Exciting as line driving, line running. That's a very convoluted way to fly when you can actually just fly. This is not about <laughs> flying, it's about get, it, uh, guesswork and descending and a shifting pattern that's kind of, that you have to kind of discern on your way down. I don't know. Flying Circus, another one. This is a uh, Flying Circus. It's played in traditional uh, Sailor Moon style schoolgirl uniforms apparently, from what I've seen. It's aerial dodging and dogfighting and racing from point to point. There are four goalposts kind of floating in space, usually over water in case someone falls. And you can Put on your anti-gravity boots and bounce from post to post and get points from that. Or tag the other person on the back and get points for that. So there's a lot of kind of swooshing down and evading and things like that. And it's the, a major, major plot component of the series. Eo no, kata, ooh, Eo no Kanata no For Rhythm. Uh, the game is Flying Circus. A bit quidditchy, I think, in the regard that the game becomes a weird focus for the series. I'm done with anime now. <laughs> I mean, I can have another one if you'd really like me to. Sure, this I'd is, love to. Uh, this is uh, Megala Boxing from, uh, I forget the name of the anime, but it's basically just regular boxing, except all the boxers are augmented. Oh, okay, I like that. Yeah. And there was another one that was, I think it was, well, all I know about it is it's Girls with Tanks. Oh, I think the anime is called Tank Girls. Yes, it is. Thank you. <laughs> um, which is not really enough to go on for a description of the sport, but I think it's a fine starting point. TV. Battlestar Galactica Pyramids. Pyramid. Mm -hmm. I like this one a lot. There's enough material on it to where you can get a sense for the rules. It's very athletic. Uh, it's very athletic. It feels like a real sport, too. It's played on a triangular court. 
One example we see of it is it's just a, a backyard thing about the size of like a, a modest room. I think that there's three panels on it, each one of which has a little goal in the middle that you throw a thing into. Pretty straightforward. But there's another, another image where you're soaring overhead from one of the like old colonies. And you see on the ground, there's a big triangle shaped field that is clearly a very expanded pyramid court. Uh, one cute thing about pyramid is that there's a lot of disagreement over the rules, like as a point of pride. And part of the reason for this is that nobody got a copy of the rules when Earth was evacuated or like when the exile took place. So point of pride, there are no written down rules for this game. If you really want to play the game Pyramid, you can probably find the rules somewhere on a message board. Yes, this is true. I, I, but don't I, be wrong because they were written down. Ah, yes. Uh, Parisis Squares. This is a background sport in Star Trek Next Generation that we never actually see played. Well, all the, all the later Star Treks. We never actually see it played. We see some people carrying Parisis Squares duffel bags. There's some net theories about what it might be. One of the ones I like is it's basically a ball and hoop, but between them is a massive, well, massive, like maybe 10 foot, 15 foot tall structure that's kind of pyramidal. So it's kind of ball and hoop meets uh, King of the Hill. A lot of the risk involved in this is falling off and breaking a bone. Princess Square's main function in Trek is to be the thing that your mother warned you about. Almost every male character at some point in time is told, don't play Princess Square's or I broke my collarbone playing priestess squares or we learned that someone's daughter died playing priestess squares or someone tells Riker don't play priestess squares like you're 21 anymore it's like your mother warning you about the bad girl it's just a game that's there as an object lesson for danger and hazard and pointlessness and growing up it's it's like a sports metaphor that you occasionally see a uniform for kosho this is from the prisoner uh, if you don't know The Prisoner, amazing series, it, uh, British 1960s spy series, more or less, where someone is put in this strange colony. It's a very surreal place, and they're probably trying to break his will or brainwash him or otherwise get into his head. I don't think we ever learn the full, like, what's going on of it because it's kind of mysterious and strange. Kosho is one aspect of this. It's trampoline jousting. Two trampolines are set kind of end-to-end -end with a four-foot-wide bathtub in the middle, and you try and douse the per dunk the person in the bathtub. Uh, bathtubs have very hard edges, so it is a high-danger game. Uh, also, you're required to wear ceremonial kosho robes, which are red and black robes with funny little helmets, one boxing glove, and one catcher's mitt, and cute lace-up shoes. It, it's a ridiculous game. It's a Dadaist sort of sport that's designed to be crazy because these grown men bouncing around on trampolines fighting each other to dunk each other in the bathroom is just a ludicrous image but the game is treated as a commonplace thing that everybody does all the time it's like many things in the prisoner strange and a little off-putting for the sake of being strange and a little off-putting but i think the prisoner itself is a noteworthy series so I, I, worth the mention i mean we do have trampoline dodgeball currently I'm going to put a bathtub in there. Yeah. I mean, looking at the uh, a court for Kosho, in the real world, sport uh, trampolines are fairly dangerous because there's like a metal bar and you're flinging yourself all over the place on them. This sport is enhanced danger level because everything is raised an additional like three feet off the ground just to hurt people. And that's magical. Anbo Jutsu, uh, staff fighting with blindfolds and proximity detectors. It's from Star Trek. Uh, as far as I can tell, it was an exercise in Japanophilia. The, the person that wrote the episode had been studying martial arts really lately, and that made them very excited in some way. So it's like, let's write a karate story in, in right. Star Trek. Movies. Uh, Jugger, we mentioned earlier, this is basketball with dog skull and weapons. It's got a LARP version now, which is big in Germany. 
a lot of like really violent games are big in Germany, and I'm not sure why that's the case, but it is the case. Germany very much enjoys its mysticism, and violent games are very mystic. Really? Is that the I primary reason? I have no reason? idea. I, I think just you made that. that up. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Maybe it's just, it's violent, and that's fun. From the world of Starship Troopers, we have Arena Football, which is like regular football, but with a one-third smaller court, lower gravity, and like dance team leotards. Uh, it's much more twisty flippy. It's mixed gender. People can bounce all over the place and vault and spring and every rebound is like amazing. It's the reason it's smaller though is, well, practically it's because it was filmed on studio and that was useful. But uh, some online commentators said it was to kind of present a lot of the thrill of football, but in a compressed and frantic manner. So it's much faster and stranger and involves less throwing and more touchdowns. Oh, I have another one for movies. Okay. Yay. Uh, Alita Battle Angel, Motorball. Uh, basically, the idea is you play, uh, it's kind of like a scaled-up bobsledding track. They throw a ball, uh, people go basically off on motorized roller skates, and it's get to the end, put ball in a hoop, and don't get thrown off the track. Ooh, that sounds potentially fatal. I like it. Potentially fatal, very big, uh, make the track as wild as you want. Throw in giant robot suits, because why not? Okay, so you add complications as needed. You add complications as needed. Excellent, Okay. Other games from the world of Warhammer 40k, we've got a trio of standard games with to the death added onto them. Scrumball, which is rugby with to death. Blood Bowl, which is football to the death. And Grasshopper, which is played in Britannia and nobody really understands the rules and a game takes three months and causes wars. A lot of sci-fi games make cricket jokes. <laughs> For some reason. Do with that what you will. Uh, Shadowrun has two popular ones. Uh, Combat Biker, which is it's arena combat on motorcycles with a giant maze. It's pretty straightforward. Sounds like a lot of fun. I think so. Uh, I liked the game Urban Brawl. But there's two very different versions of it. Uh, Urban Brawl, it's a soccer type game where you get a ball into a like five yard wide hoop. But the ball is usually like in the enemy's base in a blighted urban neighborhood. And the neighborhood, which is about three by three to four by four city blocks in an area. So a pretty big chunk of terrain. So depending on what version of the game you are, people tear through it, tear through the neighborhood and go through walls. And it's mayhem and it's basically sublimated gang warfare. And the person has the goal in their base and you destroy half of it trying to get it in there. That sounds like a lot of fun and worthy of a game. That's, I think, the earlier version. The later version, someone added rules. So one of the rules is like avoid property damage, which I think misses the fundamental spirit of the game. But urban siege soccer in a blighted cityscape that you're going to slowly destroy. I, I like that. Um, it's not a fun. Yeah. One place where I think it does provide a context for like real gameplay and questing as opposed to just kind of senseless rolling is you're playing in an area of abandoned city. It's not necessarily abandoned. And you could run across an enclave of, of orky types or government types or something and totally disrupt whatever they were doing. And that creates a major opportunity for interaction, shall Actually, we say. You could have a lot of fun with that in a gameplay setting. It, you could even like make an excuse for it. Like, say, Marsco has this chunk of their corp town that they need raised. Right. They were hosting a game here. Do as much damage as possible, but make it look showy. Things happen to be there at the same time. Ignore them. Yeah. But we promise more fun. Instead of an abandoned neighborhood, you go for an abandoned space station. Ah, sure. Do all the damage you want. Just watch out for that last wall. Or right. those pale men. Uh, one, one thing about this game that I think fits really well in HSD is uh, in the concept of, of hot zones, hot zones are created partially to destroy resources. 
this game is created partially for the opportunity to destroy resources. So this might be a pulse variation on the hot zone concept. Uh, rather than corp versus corp, teams are set out to level a small area of town in as flashy manner as possible, uh, and you pay for pay for view. Actually, this is like a, it's also very malleable because you could do capture the flag type things with it as well, or yours was go collect the ball and put it in a thing with a team protecting it or something like that. There's a lot of variations that basically just come from modern first-person shooters. Yeah, so take any game and add urban mayhem as a concept to it, and you're there capture the monuments type things. I don't know. Go capture the property deed and put it in our safe. Basically, yeah. <laughs> in all of these, I've provided links in our webpage to the um, to the games when I can find them, and I have links to the old and new rules for Urban Brawl, however you want to frame your campaign. X-Crawl, or Scrawl, I'm not really sure how it's said. I love this one. This is a game in the middle of the D20 cycle where people were creating some more unusual, less Dungeons & Dragons-derived ideas. X-Crawl is Dungeons & Dragons, but in the Shadowrun-style future, played as pay-per-view television. So there's the DJ, the dungeon judge, who guides people along a quest where they get cash prizes for destroy defeating the, the DJ's minions and plot twists and things like that. You, It's got some fun sponsorship derived media hype derived concepts for your game like uh there's copyrighted spells where the material component is a 50 dollar bill with uh the name of the company written on it and it vanishes as you cast it there's rules for like where you can put sponsorship badges i, I love this bit it's like for the fighter the ba the sponsorship typically goes on his back or his shield for the priest it's the front of the shield because of the different angles you get on these people for the wizard it's usually the hat or the back of the robe. For the rogue, the best place to put your uh, sponsorship is on the back of their hands because of all the tight close-ups. <laughs> it's just neat. It's got a, a lot of neat, silly concepts, a lot of good uh, modern culture jokes, that sort of thing. Goodman Games publishes it still. Uh, I, the new version doesn't look quite as slick as the old one did, but um, I haven't picked it up, so I don't know what the interior looks like. It's got a very old-school look and feel, though, now. I picked up a board game from Kickstarter land. I don't know where it is, but it was basically soccer or football, but the ball was a sphere of annihilation. I don't know how that would have worked. That's interesting. Uh, historical games. I only picked up two. Uh, sports, rather, not games. Uh, chess boxing. Chess boxing is, uh, actually has some furry cred because it's originally written up in a really stylish graphic novel called Freud Equator. I don't know. But there's a lot of like Egyptian-looking characters and talking animals and things like that in the background. Very stylish-looking. Chess boxing is three minutes of chess alternating with three minutes of boxing over and over again. I think it's nine rounds total. And it's not just a hodgepodge sport. It's not just silly because the chess side is blitz chess where you play as fast as possible. And if you stall, you lose points. And then boxing, which is hard. So you're really, really forcing your brain through some um, hurdles and jumping back and forth between mental exertion and physical exertion. Put you in an altered state, skilled boxers or chess players start losing track of reality pretty quickly during that, that mess. Nothing improves your reaction time like repeated head trauma. That's true. The uh, style of play tends to change a lot over the course of the match as well. Uh, fox tossing. Is this literally throwing foxes? No, yes. Sort yes. of. It's launching foxes. With? Um, rope. Ro no, tarps. So this is a... Bloodsport played in the 1700s by the same people that bought us, brought us bear baiting and um, rabbit stomping and other fun 
ways of murdering animals for delight of the crowds. Uh, this is a game for mixed couples, so, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, fun thing to do for the afternoon. A number of teams, I saw one picture that had like 40 people in it and one that had like eight, uh, line up with sort of ribbons, sort of tarps, about three feet wide, eight to 12 feet long on the ground. They stand on either side, and then someone lets a frenzied, terrified fox out of a box, maybe several. They run across the battlefield, not battlefield, field field. Killing field. Killing field. Play field. Yeah, and uh, the object is to snap your tarp upwards and, and outwards, so the poor thing is flung into the air. Oh, no. <laughs> at, at great velocity. One of the records was 21 feet for a particularly powerfully flung fox. I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> the game could be played with rabbits as well and hares. That was kind of fun, probably piggies. During some episodes, they were dressed up in sparkly, glittery things or like local political figures. One, one hazard of the game was the animals landing on the players. <laughs> I can imagine that would probably be very bad for both the animal and the player. Mm -hmm. in, in some versions, I'm just really going to regret this. If we had any listeners, they'd start, listeners, they'd start complaining. <laughs> uh, in some versions, uh, after the game, dwarves and children were led onto the field with mallets to finish the job. Uh, the game was generally not played with cats, though. These cats would stick to the ground too hard or to the contestants. Probably to the contestants. Yeah, both. Anyway, that's, that's fox tossing their pictures. I'm going to pause there for a second. I apologize for that. It's kind of hard to follow fox tossing. That's why I put it last. So my quest for the last week was to make a compelling sport for each of the corporations that would be a useful asset in possibly your game. I had some help, thankfully, um, from Wines and Tygon, because I was really at a loss for more Pulse games and for any Marsco games at all. This one is derived from a historical sport called Ba Game, which is the ancestor for all field ball games. This is a pulse specialty in my head. Uh, it's called the big game. The idea is that two monuments or spaces in opposing towns are declared goals. Uh, maybe it's the central fountain, maybe it's the mayor's office inside or outside, or the restroom at your favorite Starbucks. Uh, there's a ball. It's uh, about 30 pounds of weight with a heavy chain attached to it. And essentially for a period of about three days, you try and make as many goals as possible. This is almost verbatim a sport that was played in, um, I think, the 1800s. And through today, the only rule was no manslaughter, no murder. No murderizing. Yes, no, that was, that was literally the only rule. I think that was called mob football as well. Um, but I think this really kind of encapsulates a lot of, like, neighborhood versus neighborhood uh, pulse competition as an idea. Maybe it's played locally by like two teams of college kids that have just, just found the rules and resurrected every four or five years. Maybe two entire teams scrum at it for three days. It could be played between competing colleges. Absolutely. Um, or only held on um, spring as kind of a spring right type thing. Or maybe only held during the three busiest shopping days of the Christmas season. Whatever makes the least amount of sense. We have a three-day weekend and the professors went home? Yeah. Uh, giant Robot Ball. Yay. Thank you so much, Wines. Giant Robot Ball and Ball Ball have been two running jokes in our Sunday campaigns for a while. So I asked Wines to write up the rules for Giant Robot Ball. And it has giant robots, but the giant robots are really not the stars of the game. The struggle of the players against the giant robots on the two separate teams 
They're the heroic ones, and I feel like that makes it a good Pulse game. In my head, I think it's in the American Gladiator style right, of right. primarily for TV, not so much for home play type things. Yeah, it's short of being a network. This is not something you set up in the backyard. So the idea for a giant robot ball is there's an offensive, there are two teams uh, with five offensive players and three defensive players. The court is a long, what, like 80 meter by 30 meter thing, long rectangle. Uh, 30 by 90. Okay. With three zones, each one of which has a robot of some sort. The robots are kind of randomized. The robots are collectively 10 tons of weight. Okay. So then both teams face the same robots in this, in this Titanic battle Mm -hmm. and they run down the court trying to either get to the goal or at least be downed by a robot and or the defensive league team far along down the court. Right. So your offense has six vectors playing against the three robots, which are part of the course and three players on the opposing team. One thing I like about this game is I think it's fairly inclusive. It's good to have um, some technical skills involved. Not so much the people skills necessarily. Some leadership is good. And then, of course, the host of athletic skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that ultimately this game, if it was implemented in HSD, would be one of the more virulent anti-ASR games out there. Because ASR employee corp citizens have a lot of things like hacking and machine telepathy, which give them a decided advantage in this game. Mm-hmm. And also the idea is players versus giant robots, which uh, is kind of thumbing your nose at ASR in general. Right. And they're fairly dumb giant robots. Yeah. They they don't talk. Easily crippled giant robot ball. Mm -hmm. Tygon wrote up Rebound for me, and it patched really well into a game I wrote up called Joiner. So these are kind of the joint Marsco and IRPF ideas. So Rebound is, uh, thank you, Tygon, for this. Rebound is a uh, ball and hoop game. It's played with um, a circular court kind of littered with large obstacles. The hoops kind of spin around on the outside. I imagine they're more holograms or projections or digital displays. But these four rings, I've suggested like maybe four feet wide, just kind of orbit slowly around the outside. And you are trying to get the ball into the hoop. The game is called Rebound because you need to bounce it off of your opponents or an obstacle or something like that to get it in. But fairly traditional ball and hoop style thing. The reason I thought it made a good Marsco game, for one thing, it's, it's derived from a Terrian game. It's essentially basketball with more motion. But Tygon suggested that the uniforms were randomized. Uh, that at several points in the game, uh, your colors would shuffle and you'd be part of the other person's team or maybe your position would shuffle. So as this dynamic, everybody is kind of on the same team, kind of opposed to each other idea, which I felt really fit Marsco because Marsco does a fair amount of integration. They tend to ignore differences and things like that or filter for them. Also, it would tend to celebrate the individual's achievement, which is more of a pulse thing. And that's fine, too. So that was a rebound, and uh, the game I sketched out that was related to it is kind of like the home backyard version was called Joiner. So if you go through the equipment lists in HSD, there's the Rubox, which unpacks to an 8x8 cube. Joiner is an IRPF game that's played on two Ruboxes, stretched out a little bit. So the court is always like prefabricated, uh, made of these plastic walls. And then the hoop in the middle is a ring in a square that's formed from two pieces of uh, hard wire, which is a 20-foot length of iron steel that shapes itself with an electric charge into a prefabricated thing. So this, wherever you go in IRPF land, someone has set up one of these courts in the backyard. And it's, it's very easy to do. It's prefabricated. It only costs 1,200 creds, but if you can write that off, it's not a problem at all. 
And it's, this is just a ball and hoop game with some additional rules. Again, check our website for the rules if you're interested. But where this fits in the world is it's like a cultural ambassador for IRPF because everybody recognizes it. It's prefabricated. When they leave, they leave the courts there. Kids come and play with it and kind of like have some downtime with the officer. Every movie in IRPF land has the inevitable ball scene where someone reconciles over a ball game. And some hot zones have been actually short-circuited by the presence of a joiner court. It just defuses things to have it there to such a degree that during some particularly intentionally hot hot zones, the game has been blacklisted, which creates its own conflict that makes for a good movie. Is this kind of like the... It's just the equivalent of the uh, hook and ring game. Basically, you take a piece of string and you hang a ring uh, from it, and then you put a hook, so you can basically swing the hook out into... You swing. You stand on one side and you swing the ring out the hook onto the hook. Um, I mean, it's, this is ball and hoop, typically, but the, the, I mean, the it, hoop is fairly mobile and the, it can be swung around. And uh, you can... The hook and ring game I've seen literally everywhere. It costs all of maybe $5 to set up. <laughs> and so it's one of those, we have a tree, I have a hook, a hoop, or I have a hook, a ring, and a piece of string. Okay, cool, we have it set up. Okay, yeah. Uh, the universality of it was kind of part of the concept as well, because IRPF is very kind of generic and everywhere and the same no matter where you go. TTI gave me some trouble. I knew it had to be a Pokemon-style sport. Uh, so I went with, try and say this, which is butchered Russian, Russian for, um, like, connection or joining or something like that. This is uh, basically falconry with your cuddly, floating, empathetic space octopus as your falcon. Cuddly, floating, empathetic space octopus. Yeah, it's like a ball of cute tentacles. Ah. I just wanted to make sure I heard you right. Right, right, right. And they, they float fairly well in a low-gravity environment, so it's it's better on Europa or Ganymede. Um, they can go underwater if they want to. Um, not always safe, but exciting. So there's kind of an aerial version and an underwater version. And like falconry, you can race things or have them catch things or all the snitches or bugs or whatever. Where it gets competitive, I mean, it kind of falls into the dog grooming category as well, is the the octopus, which uh, Sivyas, I think is what I called them, tend to pick up traits of their owners, like coloration, personality. So if your Sivius is performing well, that means you're a better person. And then the nightmarish levels of competition settle in. Because if it's, if it's athletic, then probably you're, it shows the best qualities of you. If mm-hmm. it's lazy, well, that says bad things about you. So it, it becomes a very elitist sport of seriously competition grooming and self-improvement and showing off because this thing represents you on some levels. Uh, also, it is a s- subtext way of keeping money on Europa because little critters don't really perform very well outside of Europa and Ganymede. Uh, they don't like high gravity and things like that. So it keeps a lot of money invested in the moons and in blue sky stations. Also, as cute and passive as they tend to be, as if two ever touch, they basically go berserk and start ripping the arms off of each other until only one survives. I did include something like that. Not so much like if your friend had one and you had one, they would get into a fight, but you could not have two. They're very territorial about their owner. Mm-hmm. This is great. This means I can get one for both of my children. Yeah, exactly. I had a reason why you wouldn't want to do that. Oh, yeah, because the only stories of ones that went rogue or became bad, and they're, they're fairly harmless little octopusy things unless you happen to be a micro, are um, when someone bonded one to an eight-year-old or a six-year-old or something like that, where the traits it picked up were curiosity and that nice little streak of cruelty that all children have. Those are the only times they went really bad, and they can't do much, but in a group they could. It's true. And what is more terrifying than a small group of eight-year-olds? The, uh, the, what's the, the 
activity in horse riding where you make them dance. There's a word. Dressage? Dressage, yeah. The, the word for that in Edipiet um, was uh, tenets calmar, squid dancing. I, it's, these jokes are just for You're me so sometimes. so proud of yourself. <laughs> I am so proud of myself. Uh, platformer. This one was an ASR uh, game that Pulse picked up as well. This is a ball and hoop, of course, but the field is very variable. It's whatever the um, kind of the DJ of the match wants it to be. Uh, the game has um, two two sides to each team. There's the, the like three racers on the field, and they might be laterals for for size and mass. A lot of different traits are valuable, and they're trying to get the ball across the field into the hoop. But off, off on sidelines, there's the uh, three wizard players. And these people have uh, VR rigs, and their ability is they can add little force fields to the game to help the runners get across the field or to impede people. So on the one hand, you have the people racing across the, the ball and hoop field to dunk the ball. On the other hand, you have these three people wearing VR rigs doing this elaborate dance around a hologram of this charging tar or frantically trying to sketch out like the, game, the parameters of the game in, in front of them and things like that. A game that really values a lot of diversity because you can have a lot of different roles. Maybe this person is a spotter, maybe it's ASR and they have a lot of augmented reality for the crowds to participate in, so you need someone to be the face or whatever. Um, but a mixture of athletics and computers that I think would play pretty well on TV in Pulse Land and in ASR Land. Progenitus, I said I wanted to go with a fascist element here. So I looked at um, competitive non-games like Color Guard, cheerleading type things where it's more about showmanship up there's some places that list marching band as a sport which i guess by some definitions it is competitive military parade yeah exactly that sort of thing also i wanted to kind of set, set up martial arts style because that's a whole category that i wasn't touching so the game i, I called is arete which is a butchered version of the greek word arete for skill basically and it's a martial arts style that's mostly about kind of heraldry and stylized movement like uh kendo uh tai chi that's it where a lot of it is these graceful repetitive movements um very stylized but it's done in heavy armor heavy kind of tricked out armor with like a cape and things like that so along with like some just brief kind of cultural oh this is what this looks like i did a lot of um techniques and quirks and things like that that might round out someone that plays this particular activity to kind of create a martial art that was viable as a martial art as well as being a, a kind of stodgy square Progenitus, planetary defense suit, power armor, color, chi. color guard, yeah. <laughs> uh, so a lot of armor maneuvers, ways of making this slightly clunky armor that's worse than any armor on the on the field into something more useful. A lot of blocks and um, no weapon styles, things like that. And uh, a quirk that was called Herald, which is basically you are the mouthpiece, a mouthpiece for your company as long as you dress the part. And another one that I think would make good for almost any lion, which is... Uh, a um, your voice projects across a courtyard. The the, the competitive uh, erethe involves a lot of poses and a lot of uh, loudly sung protest songs from the seventies, declaimed in a stern manner. Babble babble. And finally, uh, Decca, which is my contribution for eyeglass. Decca is uh, effectively soccer, but there's a number of rules ranging from four to ten depending on what circumstances you're playing it under that no one really knows about but they're negotiated between the players and the referee and the audience and things like that and you have to kind of discover them over the course of the game 
backyard deca most teams just throw out three rules and then go from there so it's just a shifting rule game but as you get into the professional leagues the audience can bid on some of the rules uh halftime becomes this exciting period where everybody starts trading information that they have about how the game is actually supposed to be played and a lot of players get dragged off for um we'll call it fan service or whatever deals are made. Frequently you will come back to the game to find out that you've been kicked off the team temporarily because someone's eight year old son wants to play. And mom had the answer to what the win conditions are for the game. Uh, so it's a lot of social juggling, a lot of um, frustration for anybody outside of the game, outside of the spyglass community and a game that's fundamentally, it should be winnable. It should be playable, but there's always a lot of elements that are just outside of uh, understanding. Maybe in this particular version, the, uh, timeouts, the clock keeps running, and this time the referees can play for just a few minutes during the timeout. Or the timeouts don't stop the clock running, people just pause. Or maybe the win conditions for this game are um, fault and penalties also count as points, that sort of thing. Uh, this is mostly based on a game called Mao, which... The card game. Yeah, the card game Mao. Um, Mao is Uno, more or less, but no one knows the rules. Mao is a wonderful, terrible game. You play with two to two to eight players. You have two decks of cards. There is a card czar, mm -hmm. and you learn the rules by the seat of your pants. The winner of each round gets to add a new rule that they don't tell anyone about. They only get to enforce it. So it's a very hard game to find out. And actually, the rules are not really formally written down anywhere, so nobody agrees on them because it's an evolutionary rule game. No one knows what the core rules are. Uh, I have personally taken advantage of this because this used to be a game. I play this game in Scouts all the time. I'm really not surprised. Yeah, uh, and I would take advantage of the fact that no one really wrote down the rules. So I would change the rules every time I started the game. That's the spyglass component. Yeah. Uh, my mouse story, I've never played it. It sounds like a game that I'd play once and then hate or could never get anybody to play with me. But I was very into Kickstarter for a while, and I bought very, heav very heavily into a Mao Kickstarter. To, it was like a nicely printed version with different political figures and parties representing the card suits, that sort of thing. And a handsome book of, assist, of assistant rules and things like that. Uh, I never got it, which is not really a surprise for a Kickstarter. The reason I never got it was because in China, they will not print pictures of Mao. Of course not. Why would that? I, it was the perfect ending for an arbitrary game. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to uh, just bump the... Bio Pokemon that I brought into TTI for the current game that I'm running. Yeah, that was kind of fun and horrible. Fun and horrible. That's actually kind of the idea of this arc. So, um, listeners, you'll never believe it. Something went wrong. Something went wrong. Now, most of the table, I would, I would actually say the entire table plays Pokemon, uh, except me. So Wines too. Yeah, okay. So, except for one or two, pretty much everybody at the table plays Pokemon, so I didn't have to actually explain any of the rules. As soon as I said, I hope Pokemon, everyone went, oh, okay, I know what this game is, I know how it's played, and this is what's going on. So you'd, like, throw Meltdown Gel at them to get them to go down to their containable forms. Stop ruining my story. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll cut so, that out. I didn't say that. There, I deleted there were, that. There were two different parts of fun to the game. The first one is, of course, something went wrong. Some of the Pokemon were escaping from the research lab, blah, 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 growing mutations, and, like actually fighting and being a challenge to the party. So some of the fun bits there is that the party actually got to anticipate and understand how the combat works or how the enemies might react because they kind of had the Pokedex ahead of time. Um, so I could make a little bit more complex monster because I gave them some of the rules of what would happen as the combat was going through. It wasn't just a blind fight. The other half of that was just watching their expressions as I continued kind of unveiling how the game works and how it works in HSD and just watching them realize that 
oh, when, when they have Pokemons, they're actually throwing out a little 3D bioprinter that prints their little critter that then goes out and fights. And when they're done with it, they just de it and it melts until they go back and recharge the 3D printer. Well, no, I think the place where the game really clicked for me was when we all realized that these were battle creatures designed for battle. <laughs> How could that go badly? <laughs> it couldn't, obviously. No, no, no. It was fine. There comes a time in each man's life when he can't even believe his own eyes. Well, after your description, I don't think I'd want to see it either. So I guess that takes us to the end of the episode where I will open up the floor to things we thought were awesome this week. Does anybody else have anything besides me, news-wise? Yes. You do? Yes. So who wants to start? Why? I'll start. Yay! So fairly recently, as in, I think, today or yesterday... Uh, a couple of scientists, think tanks, NASA-type things, came out with a couple of ideas for different ways of terraforming Mars in a way that doesn't involve centuries of slowly releasing uh, greenhouse gases and vaporizing ice and redirecting ice and other like things that people just don't have the patience for because we're talking ranges of centuries. And now I do not have an article. Do go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a good one. Yeah, th- this is a very good one. And what they came up with is you basically take tiles of silicon aerogel, which is about 90% air. It's just kind of like a floaty silicon cloud that you could just lay out on the mm-hmm. ground. and Either in like overhead domes or just directly on the ground. Or just tiles on the ground. And when you get enough sunlight in this aerogel, which is just very fine filaments of silica in a floaty, cloudy type thingy, mm-hmm. it can raise the temperature up to a 90, nice, stable 90, 90 degree Fahrenheit. Yeah. Which is... Pretty damn amazing for a yeah. localized little spot on the ground with a little bit of cloudy silicon cloud type stuff floating over it. So you're not really terraforming the entire planet. You're making a small patch inhabitable and a very reasonable temperature. Localized hot spots that you can put a little greenhouse in. Yeah, that was a really neat article. I like that one. Nice have to get rid of all the other small issues, but you got heating down. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you can kind of put it in a glass box and that solves a lot of that the other issues. a lot of the issues. Yeah, aerogels are an incredibly cool subject, just in general. You can make them out of eggs. What? I mean, that's just a gel. <laughs> well, no, you... Uh, that's a meringue, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it will not survive re-entry. It will not survive re-entry. Yeah, but it's edible. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it's edible sugar. It's quite sweet. The, the intersection of space exploration and molecular gastronomy. <laughs> And apparently I stole the article from someone else. So That's, that's fine. It There's was a really that. great article. So I guess next week we're going to start Spyglass. I am looking at this with something of trepidation because I'm not good with Spyglass. Or maybe we won't. No, we will. Or I, will we? I have a plan. <laughs> I do not deviate from my plan, sir. <laughs> Until then, catch you, Outro Line. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Chronicles, both by Serious Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play.